0: Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Mod Path Chat, the official podcast of modern pathology, featuring interviews with authors and experts on the latest science, technology, and developments in the field of pathology. Your host, Dr. George Netto, is the Editor-in-Chief of Modern Pathology and the Chair of Pathology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Here's Dr. Neto.
1: Welcome to ModPass Chat. It's my pleasure today to host one of the rising junior stars in our field, Dr. David Chapel. David recently joined the Department of Pathology at Michigan as an assistant professor uh, Dr. Chapel will be discussing with us his multi-institutional study on developing a risk stratification model for low-stage leiomyosarcoma. David conducted the study during his fellowship at the Brigham and Women Hospital. Thank you, David, for accepting my invitation and congratulations on your new position.
0: Thank you, Dr. Neto. It's a, it's a pleasure to have been invited.
1: Yeah, I mean, I must say, uh, we're having now repeat offenders. You're so good. Uh, We got to invite you twice. So I'm so glad to have you here again. And uh, there is a reason behind that. is uh, very prolific at this early stage. Uh, so a great example for our junior uh, people in the field uh, to uh, to pursue. So uh, we're, we'll talk about this. And before we talk in details, uh, as usual, uh, give us a little background, uh, set up the stage uh, about
0: Lyomaiosarcoma of the uterus. Sure. So uh, as I'm sure most of our listeners know, Lyomyrus sarcoma is the most common mesenchymal malignancy of the uterus uh, accounts for about half to three-quarters of uterine sarcomas. And um, interestingly, uh, about half to three-quarters of uterine leiomyosarcomas actually present at stage one with uterine-confined disease. Um, And of those patients who present with stage one uterine leiomyosarcoma, about half to three-quarters, again, will will actually go on to develop a recurrence uh, despite complete removal of the tumor through hysterectomy. And unfortunately, once recurrence develops, there's a high mortality. Um, But as it happens, currently, there's not any prognostic or risk stratification system that's widely used to help us understand which patients with stage 1 uterine lyomyosarcoma will recur. And which will be cured uh, through surgery. Um, so in that context, this really is kind of the, the characteristic clinical pathologic question. And the idea really came from my mentor, Dr. Marie Nucci, who mm-hmm. said, hey, we, we have this ongoing issue with, uh, between pathology and our clinical colleagues, but we're not quite sure how best to consider the uh, prognostic status of these stage one uterine LMS patients. And so um, that was really the impetus for the study. We had great support from Dr. Suzanne George at the Mm Dana-Farber. And then luckily I was on a a research fellowship year supported by the Ovarian Cancer Research Alliance and was able to take on the project
1: that's uh, that's wonderful you know as we move to subspecialization to have opportunities and funding to extend your fellowship and and yeah. uh, and produce such impactful studies that really will uh, hopefully uh, change the way we do things uh, great and uh, so uh, so I'm just curious. So surgery is sounds like the mainstay of the treatment. Is adjuvant uh, therapy when they recur? I mean, what have adjuvant or do they wait till they recur? Do they metastasize? What is just... a little?
0: That's bit- right. So typical, the typical uh, treatment for stage one uterine leiomyosocoma is upfront surgery. And um, given that the disease in stage one tumors is uterine confined, it can almost always be entirely excised through hysterectomy. Um, neoadjuvant therapy is exceptionally rare. I think looking at hundreds of cases, we had a couple patients who had gotten neoadjuvant therapy. And then, yeah, there's the patients are just observed um over time. And when they recur, they will get systemic therapy. But upfront systemic therapy is, is uh uncommon.
1: Excellent. So uh, so tell us about the cohort and the model.
0: Sure. So, uh, this study was actually kind of the, I guess, the flagship work from a larger, more systematic effort to characterize and review almost 1,200 uterine lyomyosarcomas that had been diagnosed at the Brigham in the last 30 years since 1989. And um, as I said, we started out with this defined clinical pathologic question. And so, starting with that bolus of uh, 1,200 cases. We narrowed that down to just the stage one tumors. And then in order to hopefully make our model as broadly applicable as possible, we only looked at uh, stage one uterine Lyon-Mouse arcs that had been either diagnosed following surgery at the Brigham or patients who had been referred to the Dana-Farber and the Brigham within three months of their original diagnosis and without a recurrence. And the idea there was to try to cut down on the referral bias But I think in some larger uh, tertiary center studies can, can bias the model toward more aggressive actors. If you're including lots of patients who are coming with their third or fourth relapse. Mm -hmm. So we actually narrowed our cohort somewhat to try to make it more broadly applicable. Um, Then we went ahead we got those uh, cases at that point. It was um, 186 cases We looked at all the H&Es, made sure we agreed with the diagnoses, and in uh, a number of instances actually got additional immunohistochemical studies to confirm the LMS diagnosis. And ultimately, we ended up from the Brigham with 86 Dana-Farber referral cases and 78 in-house cases uh, for a total of 164 tumors from our institution. We were also lucky enough to have excellent collaborators Uh, Dr. Zanoni and his colleagues from Italy, and uh, Riccardo Lastra from the University of Chicago, uh, contributing 24 and 15 cases, respectively, that that met our inclusion criteria. Uh, So we were able to expand this beyond just our institution and end up with a cohort of 203 tumors in total.
1: Excellent. So it's truly multi-institutional and actually, uh, you know, across... Continent. That's that's great, and uh, so you uh, you mentioned seventeen routinely evaluated markers. I didn't know there's uh, there are, yeah. uh, parameters. I didn't know there's that many, but uh, but uh, I don't do this every day. So so tell us. Uh, you don't you know just briefly how did sure. you land on the mar- on the parameters you selected?
0: Sure. So um, there were five clinical and twelve morphologic. Uh, slash pathologic parameters. Um, some of them came from previous work in the field, looking at prognosis in leiomyosarcoma. sarcoma, um, things like tumor size, coagulative necrosis, pattern of tumor infiltration of the myometrium lymphovascular invasion. Um, and other ones just came from our observations, particularly those of my mentor, Dr. Nucci, over the course of her own clinical practice. And you know, I would say routinely evaluated or at least readily defined and, and, and readily morphologically evaluable parameters. Uh, things that the idea being any pathologist could, um, looking down the microscope, examine these parameters and then be able to use our model. So we didn't want to include, for instance, immunohistochemical or molecular studies that might not be available at all institutions.
1: So, very practical. And so, so, let's zoom in on on uh, the actual risk score and, and on the parameters that turn out to be positive on univariate and multivariate
0: analysis. Sure. So, yeah, as you say, we started out with a univariate analysis of these 17 parameters. And then we found that six of them uh, were significantly associated with disease-specific and disease-free survival. And those were coagulative necrosis, Mitotic rate, lymphovascular invasion, atypical mitoses, positive margin status, and uh, what we ended up calling serosal abutment, which is where the tumor invades all the way through the thickness of the myometrium and just abuts the underside of the serosa, but without breaking through the serosa mm-hmm. and growing on the surface uh, of the uterus. And so, with those six parameters significant on univariate analysis, we then proceeded to multivariate analyses which provided us with hazard ratios for each of those uh, six parameters. And we found that five of them were consistently independently associated with outcomes in multivariate. So mitotic rate, atypical mitosis, cognitive necrosis, LVI, and cirrhosal abutment. Positive margin status actually didn't end up being independently associated with outcome, which I, I think is because we actually had only eight tumors with positive margins, and they were strongly correlated with that serosal abutment. So for statistical reasons, it didn't make it into the model. Um, But we had those five variables consistently associated with outcome on multivariate analysis and weighted by uh, their hazard ratios. We came up with what I think is a pretty simple algebraic Mm -hmm. model um, that can help predict outcome. And that assigns a so-called risk score between Mm -hmm. zero and 13 which is calculated by presence of coagulative necrosis times one president, mm-hmm. the presence of increased mitosis, which we defined as greater than 25 mitosis per 10 high power field time, times two, atypical mitosis times two lymphovascular invasion times three and cirrhosal abutment times five. So you add up these five variables and you get your score ranging from zero to 13.
1: Excellent. So, so it's weighted. So, not each parameter is equal. Based, exactly. like explain on the hazard ratio, and, exactly. And you calculate. And I must say, uh, you know, the ten high power fields. Since we had uh, Doctor Ian Cree on previous episode talking about, uh, you know, counting mitosis. What's the high power field? It varies according to your microscope. Absolutely. And all yeah. that. So you define it as two point four uh, square millimeters. And that's an important, I think, as we go on to more precise. Uh, uh, measurements of parameters. So, uh, so you do that, it sound, it's sounding like uh, almost like a, a prostate uh, nom- <laughs> uh, nomograms. Uh, so, uh, so you do that and then uh, you can simplify it and break it into three categories, my understanding?
0: That's right, yeah. So after we had done a fairly thorough internal and external validation of the model and felt confident that we had arrived at a simple algebraic formula, to predict the, the risk of recurrence um, and of death from disease, we were still left with a score from zero to 13. And that raises the question, okay, well, what if I'm a three? What if I'm a five? What if I'm an eight? How do you help the patients to distill this down even further? And so using the receiver operator characteristic curves, we had generated as part of our validation, we were able to run an algorithm in our statistical software that could could identify optimal breakpoints, thus saying patients who fall below this level are at low risk and above this level are at high risk. We actually identified uh, three prognostically distinct groups. So patients with a score between zero and two were low risk, three to five were intermediate risk. And six or greater, or six to 13, were considered high risk. And when we took those three groups and we went back and looked at our Kaplan-Meier curves, we saw that those three groups broke apart very nicely. Um, So just looking at, for instance, five-year disease-specific survival, in low-risk patients, it was 95%, intermediate risk patients, 64%, and high-risk patients, 33%. So you're getting quite distinct differences between these three groups, which, of course, were statistically significant. And I'll also point out that the three groups were quite balanced, so we, we had about a third of our patients falling into each of the groups, um, which, of course, even if it hadn't been that way, I think would still be helpful, but it, it does sort of give us an idea that these L- mouse comas are sort of spread across the risk spectrum. Excellent.
1: So, uh, and just uh, uh, to remind to, to, to mention, because not all, if you can apply the system, I guess, a little more simplified on a myomectomy, do you want to mention something? Yeah,
0: absolutely. That's a, that's a great question. And so uh, one thing we noticed was that um, about 10 to 15% of the Lyomyosarcomas that we saw were either more slated specimens or were at least initially seen as a myomectomy. And in those instances, it might be difficult to evaluate, in particular, lymphovascular invasion if you're not seeing the background myometrium, and also this serosal abutment because if the tumor's been fragmented either through myomectomy or morcellation. That may be difficult to ascertain. Uh, so we then took our full risk model with five variables. And we took away LVI and serosal abutments you were just left with coagulative necrosis, atypical mitoses, and mitotic rate. And we found that even that simplified system was still significantly associated with disease-free and disease-specific survival and could also be broken down into sort of a low-risk, high-risk, two-tiered system. Um, Of course, it statistically underperformed the full model. So when possible, you always want to get all five parameters if you can, but it's not always possible. And in those instances, you can apply the simplified risk model and still give the the clinician and the patient a sense of the patient's uh, risk uh, going forward. Excellent. So I guess
1: going forward, if, if people start using this, uh, hopefully uh, those falling into the high risk, maybe either closer monitoring or, or back to the treatment maybe earlier or or whatever. So uh, it remains to be seen. That's that this study could not address that. Right.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So In my mind, this is just the beginning of what hopefully will be a series of studies um, looking at the utility and the practical applications of this model. And yeah, absolutely, it comes back to management and patient outcomes. If a patient's high risk, should they be managed differently than a patient who's low risk? I think intuitively, you get the sense that there probably is something we could do to acknowledge from management standpoint, the difference in risk, but of course, until further studies are done, it's unclear what exactly that would be.
1: Excellent, uh, very well done, uh, very uh, and hopefully uh, an impactful study and uh, uh, impressive. And thank you very much uh, for uh, for coming again. And uh, thank you. It's been a, it's been a pleasure to have you here.
0: No, oh, the pleasure is all mine. I'm
1: sure. Yes. Uh, so uh, uh, before, uh, before we close, I want to remind the audience, I mentioned David uh, been here uh, before, but that's before we started using the video uh, component uh, of, of the podcast. So if you like the podcast and you want to watch it, it's now broadcasted on the USCAP channel, uh, YouTube channel. Uh, so uh, in addition to Acast or uh, iTunes and, and all the other platforms. So long, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Any opinions expressed in this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the views of modern pathology, Springer Nature, UAB, or USCAP. Your ModPath chat host and scientific director is Dr. George Netto. Producers are Christina Crow, Amber Jackson, Dr. Sarah Jang, and Dr. Catherine Ketchum. Technical direction is provided by Kaminsky Productions. Music by Mitch Neubauer. Thanks to the authors, reviewers, and editors of Modern Pathology for making this podcast possible.